This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ragged Dick, or Street Life in New York with the Bootblacks, by Horatio Alger, Jr. Chapter 25 Dick Writes His First Letter When Fosdick reached home in the evening, Dick displayed his letter with some pride. "'It's a nice letter,' said Fosdick, after reading it. "'I should like to know, Frank.' "'I'll bet you would,' said Dick. "'He's a trump.' "'When are you going to answer it?' "'I don't know,' said Dick dubiously. "'I never writ a letter.' "'There's no reason why you shouldn't. "'There's always a first time, you know.' "'I don't know what to say,' said Dick. "'Get some paper and sit down to it, "'and you'll find enough to say. "'You can do that this evening instead of studying.' "'If you'll look it over afterward and shine it up a little.' "'Yes, if it needs it. "'But I rather think Frank would like it best just as you wrote it.' Dick decided to adopt Fosdick's suggestion. He had very serious doubts as to his ability to write a letter. Like a good many other boys, he looked upon it as a very serious job, not reflecting that, after all, letter-writing is nothing but talking upon paper. Still, in spite of his misgivings, he felt that the letter ought to be answered, and he wished Frank to hear from him. After various preparations, he at last got settled down to his task, and before the evening was over, a letter was written. As the first letter which Dick had ever produced, and because it was characteristic of him, my readers may like to hear it. Here it is. Dear Frank, I got your letter this morning, and was very glad to hear you hadn't forgotten Ragged Dick. I ain't so ragged as I was. Open-work coats and trousers has gone out of fashion. I put on the Washington coat and Napoleon pants to go to the post office, for I fear they wouldn't think I was the boy that was meant. On my way back, I received the congratulations of my intimate friend Mickey McGuire on my improved appearance. I've give up sleepin' in boxes and old wagons, findin' it didn't agree with my constitution. I've hired a room in Mott Street, and have got a private tutor, who rooms with me and looks after my studies in the evenin'. Mott Street ain't very fashionable, but my mansion on Fifth Avenue isn't finished yet, and I'm afraid it won't be till I'm a gray-haired veteran. I've got a hundred dollars towards it, which I've saved up for my earnings. I haven't forgot what you and your uncle said to me, and am trying to grow up spectable. I haven't been to Tony Pastor's or the Old Bowery for ever so long. I'd rather save up my money to support me in my old age. When my hair gets gray, I'm going to knock off black and boots, and go into some light, genteel employment, such as keeping an apple stand or disseminating peanuts among the people. I've got so as to read pretty well, so my tutor says. I've been studying geography and grammar also. I've made such astonishing progress that I can tell a noun from a conjunction as far away as I can see him. Tell Mr. Monroe that if he wants an accomplished teacher in his school, he can send for me, and I'll come on by the very next train. Or if he wants to sell out for a hundred dollars, I'll buy the whole concern, and agree to teach the scholars all I know myself in less than six months. Is teaching as good business, generally speaking, as black and boots? My private tutor combines both, and is making a fortune with great rapidity. He'll be as rich as Astor some time, if only he lives long enough. I should think you'd have a bully time at your school. I should like to go out in the boat, or play ball with you. When are you coming to the city? I wish you'd write and let me know when you do, and I'll call and see you. I'll leave my business in the hands of my numerous clerks, and go round with you. 
There's lots of things you didn't see when you was here before. They're getting on fast at Central Park. It looks better than it did a year ago. I ain't much used to writing letters. As this is the first one I ever wrote, I hope you'll excuse the mistakes. I hope you'll write to me again soon. I can't write so good a letter as you, but I'll do my best, as the man said when he was asked if he could swim over to Brooklyn backwards. Goodbye, Frank. Thank you for all your kindness. Direct your next letter to North Mott Street. Your true friend, Dick Hunter. When Dick had written the last word, he leaned back in his chair and surveyed the letter with much satisfaction. "'I didn't think I could have wrote such a long letter, Fosdick,' said he. "'Written would have been more grammatical, Dick,' suggested his friend. "'I guess there's plenty of mistakes in it,' said Dick. "'Just look at it and see.' Fosdick took the letter and read it over carefully. "'Yes, there are some mistakes,' he said. "'But it sounds so much like you that I think it would be better to let it go just as it is. "'It will be more likely to remind Frank of what you were when he first saw you.' "'Is it good enough to send?' asked Dick anxiously. "'Yes. It seems to me quite a good letter. It is written just as you talk. "'Nobody but you could have written such a letter, Dick. "'I think Frank will be amused at your proposal to come up there as a teacher.' "'Perhaps it would be a good idea for us to open a select school here in Mott Street,' said Dick humorously. "'We could call it Professor Fosdick and Hunter's Mott Street Seminary, boot black and taught by Professor Hunter.' The evening was so far advanced that Dick decided to postpone copying his letter till the next evening. By this time he had come to have a very fair handwriting, so that when the letter was complete it really looked quite creditable, and no one would have suspected that it was Dick's first attempt in this line.' Our hero surveyed it with no little complacency. In fact, he felt rather proud of it, since it reminded him of the great progress he had made. He carried it down to the post office and deposited it with his own hands in the proper box. Just on the steps of the building as he was coming out, he met Johnny Nolan, who had been sent on an errand to Wall Street by some gentleman, and was just returning. "'What are you doing down here, Dick?' asked Johnny. "'I've been mailing a letter.' "'Who sent you?' "'Nobody.' "'I mean, who writ the letter?' "'I wrote it myself.' "'Can you write letters?' asked Johnny in amazement. "'Why shouldn't I?' "'I didn't know you could write. I can't.' "'Then you ought to learn.' "'I went to school once, but it was too hard work, so I give it up.' "'You're lazy, Johnny. That's what's the matter. How'd you ever expect to know anything if you don't try?' "'I can't learn.' "'You can if you want to.' Johnny Nolan was evidently of a different opinion. He was a good-natured boy, large of his age, with nothing particularly bad about him, but utterly lacking in that energy, ambition, and natural sharpness, for which Dick was distinguished. He was not adapted to succeed in the life which circumstances had forced upon him, for in the street life of the metropolis a boy needs to be on the alert, and have all his wits about him or he will find himself wholly distanced by his more enterprising competitors for popular favor. To succeed in his profession, humble as it is, a bootblack must depend upon the same qualities which gain success in higher walks in life. It was easy to see that Johnny, unless very much favored by circumstances, would never rise much above his present level. For Dick, we cannot hoping much better things. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 an exciting adventure. 
Dick now began to look about for a position in a store or counting-room. Until he should obtain one, he determined to devote half the day to blacking boots, not being willing to break in upon his small capital. He found that he could earn enough in half a day to pay all his necessary expenses, including the entire rent of the room. Fosdick desired to pay his half, but Dick steadily refused, insisting upon paying so much as compensation for his friend's services as instructor. It should be added that Dick's peculiar way of speaking and use of slang terms had been somewhat modified by his education and his intimacy with Henry Fosdick. Still, he continued to indulge in them to some extent, especially when he felt like joking, and it was natural to Dick to joke, as my readers have probably found out by this time. Still, his manners were considerably improved, so that he was more likely to obtain a situation than when first introduced to our notice. Just now, however, business was very dull, and merchants, instead of hiring new assistants, were disposed to part with those already in their employ. After making several ineffectual applications, Dick began to think he should be obliged to stick to his profession until the next season. But about this time something occurred which considerably improved his chances of preferment. This is the way it happened. As Dick, with the balance of more than a hundred dollars in the savings bank, might fairly consider himself a young man of property, he thought himself justified in occasionally taking a half-holiday from business and going on an excursion. On Wednesday afternoon, Henry Fosdick was sent by his employer on an errand to that part of Brooklyn near Greenwood Cemetery. Dick hastily dressed himself in his best and determined to accompany him. The two boys walked down to the South Ferry, and paying their two cents each, entered the ferry boat. They remained at the stern and stood by the railing, watching the great city with its crowded wharves receding from view. Beside them was a gentleman with two children, a girl of eight and a little boy of six. The children were talking gaily to their father. While he was pointing out some object of interest to the little girl, the boy managed to creep, unobserved, beneath the chain that extends across the boat, for the protection of the passengers, and stepping incautiously to the edge of the boat, fell over into the foaming water. At the child's scream the father looked up, and with a cry of horror sprang to the edge of the boat. He would have plunged in, but, being unable to swim, would only have endangered his own life without being able to save his child. "'My child!' he exclaimed in anguish. "'Who will save my child? A thousand, ten thousand dollars to anyone who will save him!' There chanced to be but few passengers on board at the time, and nearly all these were either in the cabins or standing forward. Among the few who saw the child fall was our hero. Now Dick was an expert swimmer. It was an accomplishment which he had possessed for years, and he no sooner saw the boy fall than he resolved to rescue him. His determination was formed before he heard the liberal offer made by the boy's father. Indeed, I must do Dick the justice to say that, in the excitement of the moment, he did not hear it at all, nor would it have stimulated the alacrity with which he sprang to the rescue of the little boy. Little Johnny had already risen once and gone under for the second time, when our hero plunged in. He was obliged to strike out for the boy, and this took time. He reached him none too soon. Just as he was sinking for the third and last time, he caught him by the jacket. Dick was stout and strong, but Johnny clung to him so tightly that it was with great difficulty he was able to sustain himself. "'Put your arms around my neck,' said Dick. The little boy mechanically obeyed, 
and clung with a grasp strengthened by his terror. In this position Dick could bear his weight better. But the ferry-boat was receding fast. It was quite impossible to reach it. The father, his face pale with terror and anguish, and his hands clasped in suspense, saw the brave boy's struggles, and prayed with agonizing fervor that he might be successful. But it is probable, for they were now midway of the river, that both Dick and the little boy whom he had bravely undertaken to rescue would have been drowned, had not a rowboat been fortunately near. The two men who were in it witnessed the accident, and hastened to the rescue of our hero. "'Keep up a little longer!' they shouted, bending to their oars, "'and we will save you!' Dick heard the shout, and it put fresh strength into him. He battled manfully with the treacherous sea, his eyes fixed longingly upon the approaching boat. "'Hold on tight, little boy,' he said. "'There's a boat coming!' The little boy did not see the boat. His eyes were closed to shut out the fearful water, but he clung the closer to his young preserver. Six long, steady strokes, and the boat dashed alongside. Strong hands seized Dick and his youthful burden, and drew them into the boat, both dripping with water. "'God be thanked!' exclaimed the father, as from the steamer he saw the child's rescue. "'That brave boy shall be rewarded, if I sacrifice my whole fortune to compass it.' "'You've had a pretty narrow escape, young chap,' said one of the boatmen to Dick. "'It was a pretty tough job you undertook.' "'Yes,' said Dick. "'That's what I thought when I was in the water. "'If it hadn't been for you, I don't know what would have come of us.' "'Anyhow, you're a plucky boy, or you wouldn't have dared to jump into the water after this little chap. "'It was a risky thing to do.' "'I'm used to the water,' said Dick modestly. "'I didn't stop to think of the danger.' "'but I wasn't going to see that little fellow drown "'without trying to save him.' "'The boat at once headed for the ferry-wharf on the Brooklyn side. "'The captain of the ferry-boat, seeing the rescue, "'did not think it necessary to stop his boat, but kept on his way. "'The whole occurrence took place in less time than I have occupied in telling it. "'The father was waiting on the wharf to receive his little boy, "'with what feelings of gratitude and joy can be easily understood.' With a burst of happy tears he clasped him in his arms. Dick was about to withdraw modestly, but the gentleman perceived the movement, and putting down the child came forward, and clasping his hand said with emotion, "'My brave boy, I owe you a debt I can never repay. But for your timely service I should now be plunged into an anguish which I cannot think of without a shudder.' Our hero was ready enough to speak on most occasions, but always felt awkward when he was praised. "'It wasn't any trouble,' he said modestly. "'I can swim like a top.' "'But not many boys would have risked their lives for a stranger,' said the gentleman. "'But,' he added with a sudden thought, as his glance rested on Dick's dripping garments, "'both you and my little boy will take cold and wet clothes. "'Fortunately I have a friend living close at hand, "'at whose house you will have an opportunity of taking off your clothes and having them dried.' "'Dick protested that he never took a cold.' But Fosdick, who had now joined them, and who, it is needless to say, had been greatly alarmed at Dick's danger, joined in urging compliance with the gentleman's proposal, and in the end our hero had to yield. His new friend secured a hack, the driver of which agreed for extra recompense to receive the dripping boys into his carriage, and they were whirled rapidly to a pleasant house in a side street, where matters were quickly explained, and both boys were put to bed. "'I ain't used to going to bed quite so early,' 
thought Dick. This is the queerest excursion I ever took. Like most active boys, Dick did not enjoy the prospect of spending half a day in bed, but his confinement did not last as long as he anticipated. In about an hour the door of his chamber was opened, and a servant appeared, bringing a new and handsome suit of clothes throughout. "'You are to put on these,' said the servant to Dick, "'but you needn't get up till you feel like it.' "'Whose clothes are they?' asked Dick. "'They are yours.' "'Mine? Where did they come from?' "'Mr. Rockwell sent out and bought them for you. "'They are the same size as your wet ones.' "'Is he here now?' "'No. He bought another suit for the little boy "'and has gone back to New York. "'Here's a note he asked me to give you.' "'Dick opened the paper and read as follows. "'Please accept this outfit of clothes "'as the first installment of a debt which I can never repay. "'I have asked to have your wet suit dried "'when you can reclaim it. "'Will you oblige me by calling tomorrow at my counting-room?' Number blank Pearl Street. Your friend, James Rockwell. End of chapter 26. Chapter 27. Conclusion. When Dick was dressed in his new suit, he surveyed his figure with pardonable complacency. It was the best he had ever worn, and fitted him as well as if it had been made expressly for him. He's done the handsome thing, said Dick to himself, but there wasn't no occasion for his giving me these clothes. My lucky stars are shining pretty bright now. Jumping into the water pays better than shining boots. But I don't think I'd like to try it more than once a week. About eleven o'clock the next morning, Dick repaired to Mr. Rockwell's counting-room on Pearl Street. He found himself in front of a large and handsome warehouse. The counting-room was on the lower floor. Our hero entered and found Mr. Rockwell sitting at a desk. No sooner did that gentleman see him than he arose and advancing, shook Dick by the hand in the most friendly manner. "'My young friend,' he said, "'you have done me so great a service "'that I wish to be of some service to you in return. "'Tell me about yourself, "'and what plans or wishes you have formed for the future.' Dick frankly related his past history, and told Mr. Rockwell of his desire to get into a store or counting-room, and of the failure of all his applications thus far. The merchant listened attentively to Dick's statement, and when he had finished, placed a sheet of paper before him, and handing him a pen, said, "'Will you write your name on this piece of paper?' Dick wrote in a free, bold hand the name Richard Hunter. He had very much improved in his penmanship, as has already been mentioned, and now had no cause to be ashamed of it. Mr. Rockwell surveyed it approvingly. "'How would you like to enter my counting-room as clerk, Richard?' he asked. Dick was about to say, "'Bully!' when he recollected himself, and answered, "'Very much.' "'I suppose you know something of arithmetic, do you not?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Then you may consider yourself engaged at a salary of ten dollars a week. You may come next Monday.' Ten dollars?' repeated Dick, thinking he must have misunderstood. "'Yes. Will that be sufficient?' "'It's more than I can earn,' said Dick honestly." "'Perhaps it is at first, said Mr. Rockwell, smiling. "'But I am willing to pay you that. "'I will besides advance you as fast as your progress will justify it.' Dick was so elated that he hardly restrained himself from some demonstration, which would have astonished the merchant. But he exercised self-control, and only said, "'I'll try if to serve you faithfully, sir, "'that you won't repent having taken me into your service.' "'And I think you will succeed.' said Mr. Rockwell, encouragingly. 
I will not detain you any longer, for I have some important business to attend to. I shall expect to see you on Monday morning. Dick left the counting room, hardly knowing whether he stood on his head or his heels. So overjoyed was he at the sudden change in his fortunes. Ten dollars a week was to him a fortune, and three times as much as he had expected to obtain at first. Indeed, he would have been glad only the day before to get a place at three dollars a week. He reflected that with the stock of clothes which he now had on hand, he could save up at least half of it, and even then live better than he had been accustomed to do, so that his little fund in the savings bank, instead of being diminished, would be steadily increasing. Then he was to be advanced if he deserved it. It was indeed a bright prospect for a boy who, only a year before, could neither read nor write, and depended for a night's lodging upon the chance hospitality of an alleyway or old wagon. Dick's great ambition to grow up spectable seemed likely to be accomplished after all. I wish Fosdick was as well off as I am, he thought generously. But he determined to help his less fortunate friend, and assist him up the ladder as he advanced himself. When Dick entered his room on Mott Street, he discovered that someone else had been there before him, and two articles of wearing apparel had disappeared. By gracious! he exclaimed. Somebody's stole my Washington coat and Napoleon pants! Maybe it's an agent of Barnum's who expect to make a fortune by exhibiting the valuable wardrobe of a gentleman of fashion. Dick did not shed many tears over his loss, as in his present circumstances he never expected to have any further use for the well worn garments. It may be stated that he afterwards saw them adorning the figure of Mickey Maguire, but whether that estimable young man stole them himself he never ascertained. As to the loss, Dick was rather pleased that it had occurred. It seemed to cut him off from the old vagabond life, which he hoped never to resume. Henceforward he meant to press onward, and rise as high as possible. Although it was yet only noon, Dick did not go out again with his brush. He felt that it was time to retire from business. He would leave his share of the public patronage to other boys less fortunate than himself. That evening Dick and Fosdick had a long conversation. Fosdick rejoiced heartily in his friend's success, and on his side had the pleasant news to communicate that his pay had been advanced to six dollars a week. I think we can afford to leave Mott Street now, he continued. This house isn't as neat as it might be, and I shall like to live in a nicer quarter of the city. All right, said Dick. We'll hunt up a new room tomorrow. I shall have plenty of time, having retired from business. I'll try to get my regular customers to take Johnny Nolan in my place. That boy hasn't any enterprise. He needs somebody to look out for him. You might give him your box and brush, too, Dick. No, said Dick. I'll give him some new ones, but mine I want to keep, to remind me of the hard times I've had when I was an ignorant bootblack and never expected to be anything better. When, in short, you were Ragged Dick. You must drop that name and think of yourself now as. Richard Hunter, Esquire, said our hero, smiling. A young gentleman on the way to fame and fortune, added Fosdick. Here ends the story of Ragged Dick. As Fosdick said, he is Ragged Dick no longer. He has taken a step upward and is determined to mount still higher. There are fresh adventures in store for him, and for others who have been introduced in these pages. Those who have felt interested in this early life will find his history continued in a new volume. Forming the second of the series, and to be called Fame and Fortune, or The Progress of Richard Hunter. End of chapter twenty seven.
End of story.